Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. On today's show, Jeff Anderson is going to join the conversation as Tom and I talk about the new USDA survey on honeybee colony health. Also, there's a new report on GMOs, and we're going to discuss the debate over what to do regarding the Zika virus. First, I'd like to welcome to the show my co-host, Colorado beekeeper, Tom Theobald. Hello, Tom. Hello, June. I'm happy to be back. And our guest today, Jeff Anderson, owner of California, Minnesota Honey Farms. Hello, Jeff, and hello, Tom. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on, June, and uh, hi, Tom. Hello, Jeff. It's good to talk to you again. Well, fellas, we've got a lot to talk about today. This new survey, the USDA survey on honeybee colony health, is disappointing in a number of ways, but it really doesn't surprise me that this is what they produce. Jeff, I'd like you to explain to our listeners exactly what is involved with putting together this type of a survey and if you could provide your own personal feedback coming from somebody who is a commercial migratory beekeeper, how accurate you feel this is. Well, it's a voluntary survey, uh, uh, Be Informed Partnership is is partnered with USDA to to do this, and and they're calling it an annual survey. Uh, they've done it for uh, since about 2006 or seven when uh, the high mortality rates and pollinators first showed up. What's a little bit different is that this is the second year that they've actually tracked both the summer losses and the overwinter losses. All the previous surveys. Uh, with the exception of 2014, have only been winter losses. And so it's kind of interesting to me that that this new survey, uh, one of the things that I've read in the press, the several articles that I've read, is that they are somewhat surprised that the over-summer losses are actually exceeding the winter losses. And like that's a, like that's an epiphany, but in, in my operation, and I've kept bees now for over 40 years, um, that's been fairly common. Uh, my my in my operation, my uh, summer losses would exceed my winter losses by four to six percent, and so that to me that that's not a real surprise. What what I think we need to be focusing on is is the actual fact that we have such high losses across the board. Yeah, I think everybody, including the surveyors, uh, agree that these losses are unsustainable. Tom, we've been talking about honeybee losses ever since we launched the special series. How accurate is this? And secondly, when it comes to honeybee losses, where are we really at? 
boy. We're we're in deep trouble. My my baseline is a little different than uh, it might be for the commercial operators. I was a one man operation, and at my peak, I ran about 200 colonies of bees. But I ran those pretty intensively, and for the last 15 or 20 years, I ran two queen colonies, which are high powered, highly productive colonies. And I've looked back over the records, and in a normal winter my losses might be 2 to 5%. My summer losses, except to what, for what we might have lost to agricultural spraying, were virtually zero. In a bad winter, I might lose as many as 10%, uh, quite low. And the, the challenge then was to keep the numbers down, not to have your numbers escalate until before you knew it, you were like my friend Jeff with several thousand colonies of bees. I wanted to keep it as a one-man operation, but my baseline was much lower, and that's that's the rate of survival for bees that are kept very carefully and closely. A commercial operator can't give them quite the individual attention that I would have, and that's the reason for the difference. Is this an accurate assessment of losses because you and I have been talking about this for many years we already have reached the 90% loss and they're they're including some hobbyists that have a couple of hives and they're including it with people like Jeff it's ridiculous well in the surveying world this is what's called a sampling bias and Jeff touched on that at the beginning this is voluntary so we don't know what the losses might have been for those people who didn't volunteer I was involved in some contentious uh, community issues, and one of the things that I learned is that advocacy groups are quick to generate a survey that supports their particular position. And I did a little research, and I had a surveying class in college, and when I was doing the research, I came across something that the uh, surveying world uses frequently, and what they say is that Advocacy groups use surveys the way a drunk uses the lamp, a lamppost for support rather than illumination. And I think there's a certain amount of this going on here. As astounding as that 44% loss is, I think it's probably low. When I talk to commercial beekeepers, what they tell me is that through the course of a season, there may be an almost complete turnover of their population. They may start the season with a thousand colonies of bees and end the season with a colony of bees, but over the period of a year, there are extensive losses. The better colonies are split to replace those losses, and you may wind up at the end of the season with the same number that you started with, but those aren't the same bees. You've gone through a tremendous amount of effort to keep the numbers up. And I'm sure that Jeff can expand on that a little bit because he's faced with those problems every day. Yeah, I'd like, I would like to weigh in on this because I have filled out the bee informed uh, partnership surveys. And one of the things that's interesting, and, and of course you, you're not going to put all the information that you gather out in a, in a press release. I, I understand that, but, to Tom's point here, uh, part of the questions that they ask in their survey is, is the number of colonies that you uh, split or the number of queens that you purchased uh, to uh, maintain those colonies and whatnot. And uh, we're talking the, the number that they put out is the number of colonies that were lost. 
And so, like, for instance, in my operation, uh, back before we had these high mortalities starting in the mid-2000s, I would split about 20% of my colonies to maintain uh, uh, a static number of hives. And like Tom said, if you got uh, very uh, careless in how you did that, you could generate lots of hives in a big hurry. And uh, and if you weren't careful, you'd end up running way more bees than you wanted. Uh, today, uh, this this year, 2015, in the spring here, I split every colony two times. Not not 20% of the whole, but but twice on 100% of everything I had alive. Okay, but that still doesn't that still doesn't uh, factor in all the issues because. Uh, what we do th- during the season to maintain colonies is, is if a queen fails or a colony is uh, uh, on its way uh, out, uh, we purchase queens and we rebuild colonies during the course of the summer. And uh, the survey uh, announcement of 40% loss doesn't tell the public any of those numbers. And in reality, we're probably in the excess of 100% loss um, if you count all the rebuilding that is done to maintain uh, live hives. I think Jeff uh, makes it pretty clear what we're up against. I'm at about 10% of what I had when I I had a thriving business. I have about 10% of the bees, about 10% of the crop, and uh, I'm virtually out of business. This has put me out of business. Well, Tom, you're doing this at this point because of your passion and love of bees, but the bottom line is is that your business has already tanked. If you were a new beekeeper that was just starting out, you would have already had to have closed the business down because there's just no way to sustain yourself, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't quite understand. They don't understand how expensive it is to not only manage bees, but to keep replenishing the supply, the colonies. And that's exactly what the big concern is. It's great that they put this survey together, but at the end of the day, what is it really accomplishing? All it is is providing some sort of appeasement to the pressures that have been put upon the USDA to do something to show that they're making an effort to protect the bees. And I just think this whole thing is ridiculous. There's an interesting uh, sideline to this survey story. There's very little, and Jeff has probably read it better than I have more completely, but there's very little reference to the role that the pesticides are playing in these losses. Most of the blame is put on the varroa mite. And one of the things that's said in the survey is that beekeepers, many of the new beekeepers are trying to do a non-chemical form of beekeeping. And the assertion is made in the survey that they have become a source of of the varroa contamination, that their hives die and then those varroa migrate to healthy colonies and that the hobbyist beekeepers, the ones who are not managing for varroa, are exacerbating the problem. And it's it's created a great deal of, of res- 
response from the hobbyist beekeepers, those who are non-chemical beekeepers. And this, uh, there's a backstory to this, and you have to go back two or three years. Van Engelsdorp collaborated with Jeff Pettis on research on the effect of these neonicotinoids on the bees, and they found that it made them susceptible to uh, nosema, and the only way that they knew that was that they were the ones who had administered the chemicals, that they could not find the chemicals in the colonies that broke down. And Pettis was admonished for speaking out about these results. He kept speaking out, and he was demoted and defrocked. Van Engelsdorp, on the other hand, went to an assistant professorship at Maryland and has has seemingly tried to avoid the question of pesticides at every opportunity and focus on the varroa. Certainly the varroa may enter in here, but the chemical environment that we face is the major player in these losses, and I think Jeff would agree to that. It's not only the neonicotinoids, but it's many other pesticides that are used as seed treatments and as direct applications in many forms. We cannot survive this pesticide environment. It has to change. Well, Tom, I think you make an excellent point when it comes to the role that these pesticides play because, once again, it's another major body of government that is supposed to be protecting the environment and pesticides and herbicides are a huge component here. It's just completely left out. I took a quick look at the survey, and the USDA apparently is saying that the losses were 8% and 40% in South Dakota. I'm not sure how they come to those figures. Maybe maybe you understand it better than I do, Jeff. No, I'm not sure what on the loss factor there, but I wanted to point out another thing about the rural mite because they – uh, you're right. They they do make the allegation that that uh, hobby beekeepers are somehow responsible for for the losses here. I want to talk about the varroa mite for a bit because one of the other things, and varroa mite is a problem, <clears throat> un unmanaged uh, 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 within a couple of years, it can kill a colony of bees. But what's interesting is they keep moving the, the target point of what triggers a varroa problem. Um, when we first had varroa mites, um, researchers, including Dennis Van Engelsdorf, were telling beekeepers that we were a little bit too fixated on varroa mite. In other words, we were never going to get to a zero uh, point of mites in the colony and so, therefore, we had to determine what the economic threshold would be and and then treat relative to the economic threshold. And they have several quick uh, methods to survey a colony of bees for mites. One is you take uh, about a quarter of a cup of bees, or uh, which is about 300 bees, and you... Uh, use ether to to kill the bees which also kills the mites and the mites will release and you can shake them in a in a, a jar and see how many mites there would be in in uh, uh, on a particular group of bees and 
at in the early days, they used to tell us that if you had 12 mites, 8 to 12 mites, on a 100B sample, that that was an economic threshold and you should uh, consider treatment to reduce the mite load. Now we're down where um, they're starting to tell us that if we have 3Bs, 3 mites, in a 300B sample that we've reached economic threshold. And what my observation as a commercial beekeeper is that that it is actually true that the mites appear to be more virulent, but I don't think the mite itself is the problem. The, the problem is that the uh, chemicals that our bees are exposed to have reduced their ability, their immune response to these various pests and pathogens, and, and they actually are more virulent in the colony but it's not because the pest or the pathogen actually became more virulent. It's just that the bees have lost their ability to, to uh, adequately respond when they're challenged with a, uh, a creature like the varroa mite or, or a pest or a pathogen. Jeff, can you explain why the Bee Informed Partnership is so critical here and how they became the go-to when it comes to anything to do with bees? Well... The Informed Partnership was formed uh, uh, early in the colony uh, since the mid since we started having high mortality. The Informed Partnership was conceived by Dennis Van Engelsdorf, professor, and uh, what they currently do is they actually offer a, a service to uh, to beekeepers where you can actually hire them to come out and uh, look through your colonies and assess. Uh, colony health, and they make recommendations for things like mite treatment or virus treatment based on their findings. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, in their in their normal um, visits, they do not look at pesticides at all. And if you feel like you have issues with pesticides, they will uh, actually sample for that, but it's an, a significant additional charge. Uh, like $375 per sample that they would uh, take and run for pesticide analysis. And so what it does is it creates kind of an interesting situation, and, and I believe it actually creates a strong slant in what the, in, the information that the Informed Partnership has because they are commonly looking for uh, pests like varroa mites and, and some of the uh, pathogen things like uh, nosema and viruses. Uh, so they have data to, to support that they find these things in colonies, but in general they do not have data that supports the fact that there are pesticides involved in, in, the, in the scenario as well. And so in my opinion, it, it actually causes a strong slant in what, what they say publicly because they talk about what they see, but you see what you look for. And uh, if you're looking only for varroa mites and pests and pathogens, that's what you will see because uh, it's they're endemic in, in bee colonies. They have been for a long time. They have been before we had these high mortality rates, which started in the mid-2000s. And all of a sudden now we, we seem to blame those things for the high mortality when when, in my opinion, they've been there all along. The evidence is the chemicals are 
are a major player in these losses. And you have to ask yourself why the Be Informed Partnership would not address this question. I believe it's not accidental, it's intentional. And and it's part of the propagandizing to take the attention away from these chemicals. We're seeing what is probably the most massive poisoning of the environment in human history. And the bees are one of the casualties. Now, to do this kind of surveying and not look at that element is, I think, irresponsible. It's interesting that this particular survey didn't emphasize the impact that the pesticides had on bees, which is also a major concern with this new report that's out on GMOs. The report talks about how the the comparison between GMOs and non-GMO crops and how they fare and what the report shows is that there isn't much of a difference as far as some of the concerns that people have had. One of the big issues that I find with this is that, A, it doesn't address the pesticide issue. B, the GMOs were created, the GMOs were created initially so that they could yield more. And this report actually shows that it doesn't. So that was kind of counterproductive as far as that point was concerned. But once again, the lack of emphasis on pesticides and herbicides, the chemical industry is just completely overlooked. As you both know, GMOs are the companion technology to neonicotinoids. So this is just baffling. Well, I think that they're intentionally trying to keep the subject away from the pesticides because that's their weakest hand. All of the genetically modified crops have as a companion technology seed treatment with neonicotinoids and a number of other long-lasting, very damaging pesticides. And I've said it many times on this program, what we're seeing is the toxic equivalent every year applied to hundreds of millions of acres, the toxic equivalent of hundreds of billions of pounds of DDT. And that's no exaggeration. Hundreds of billions of pounds. They're finding it everywhere they look. They're finding it in the soil. They're finding it in the water. They're finding it in non-target plants. They're finding it in the wildflowers. And we know that there's no safe dose with these chemicals. Now, I have to ask you, in light of these questions, why would it be so scrupulously avoided by everyone, by the EPA, by the USDA, by the chemical companies? We're being duped and we're being poisoned. I'd like to read a quote from Eric Sachs from Monsanto's Scientific Affairs. And he's quoted as saying, after 30 years of research and assessments, the science and safety behind GE crops has been well established and strongly supported by the scientific community. My question is, which scientific community? If you look in Europe, there's papers all over the place about why they need to ban GMO crops. It begs the question, okay, who is the scientific community that industry keeps referring to? Well, it's the corporate scientific community. That's, of course that's it is. one of the things that these corporations have done. And 
and it's a very crafty thing. They have supported many scientists, and they're able to generate science that supports their position. The critics would call it junk science. It's not all junk, but it's certainly slanted, and the corporations have a, a heavy influence on what the scientific evidence is because it's difficult for independent researchers to find the money to do the work that is needed. The EPA does no private uh, study of its own. It simply accepts what the chemical industry supplies to it and, and reviews it. This is a system that is seriously flawed, and it seems that nobody is really in the driver's seat, and I've criticized Congress before, and I'll criticize them again. This is a management population a problem. This is a management problem. I think that most of the EPA people, given the opportunity, would want to do what the EPA is supposed to do. They want to protect the environment. They want to protect human health, but they're being grossly mismanaged. And that management is called to account by no one other than the chemical companies. The EPA is simply a division of the chemical companies. Now, Jeff, You've been on the show numerous times talking about the after effects of the the genetically modified crops that have been planted and what your bees sustain. Could you just take a moment and share some of these experiences with our listeners? Well, I agree strongly with Tom that that, that uh, you know they they advertise the genetic modifications as a way to reduce the amount of other pesticides used in the environment. And obviously some of the genetic modifications, for instance, the BTs that they use, in, which stands for biological toxin, is that they use in, in some of the crops like corn, uh, cause the plant to create their own insecticide and, and, and therefore reduce the, the pest pressure on the crop. And if if it were true that um, by putting a biological toxin inside of a plant that you could reduce the pest pressure and therefore reduce the other pesticides, it probably would be a useful technology. But like you pointed out, June, there's there's little evidence that they've actually like increased production. But the part that they're not talking about is, uh, and you can find this if you look at the USGS or the USDA. Uh, reports on the amount of pesticides used in our environment, it has strongly, strongly spiked the uh, the particularly fungicides and growth regulators in addition to neonics, which are not actually counted by EPA as a pesticide if, as long as they're put on as a seed treatment. Um, we have probably... Uh, increased our use since the early 2000s by about 500% in our agricultural community of pesticides. And it's it's these companion products that are utilized on the genetically modified crops. So, uh, you know, on one hand, they, they advertise to the public that this is a way to reduce other types of pesticides. And, and the re actual reality is that since we've started to use the gen genetic modified crops, the use of our uh, other pesticides, uh, fungicides, growth regulators, and insecticides has actually gone way up. Jeff, it just seems as though 
industry finds so many new opportunities where industry can take advantage of these little loopholes to continue to sell product where they can pretty much do what they want. I, I, we, in my opinion, our bureaucracy, the EPA, is actually, uh, you know, they're, they're doing bureaucratic legislative anarchy. I don't know how else to say that. Uh, you know, we have, we have good rules. The rules are not bad that regulate pesticides. But but the way they're twisted and interpret, interpreted, you have pretty much given uh, the EPA has pretty much given the chem industry free reign to to produce and sell everything that they can imagine. Exactly. You mentioned before the insect growth regulators. Yeah. That can you, can you just take a moment and explain to our listeners what exactly they are and how come something like an IGR is not included. That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, okay, an insect growth regulator is designed to interfere with the molt cycle of the insect. You know, a lot of um, insects change. They have different stages in their life, and they molt like a like a butterfly molts to uh, the larva to become a butterfly. And in the honeybee colony, the the egg is laid that goes through a larval stage and then it molts before it becomes an adult bee. And so growth regulators are toxic, you know, from my perspective as a, as a professional or a commercial beekeeper, uh, growth regulators are really damaging my bee colony because it interferes with the ability of the hive to actually raise adult bees. Uh, it, it kills them during their, during their uh, production cycle. It's an effective way to manage pests, but the problem is it's not target specific, and and uh, the bee industry is has significant problems uh, in particularly pollinated crop situations where uh, they utilize quite a few fungicides, and 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 fairly recently they've started adding growth regulators. Uh, which they actually apply during the time when the crop is in bloom and the NRBs are out there pollinating, and and it did, it causes some real issues in our uh, in our bee colonies. We can't we lose bee population when we when we do pollination if the ESRBs are exposed to uh, these growth regulators. In in other parts of the country, in the Midwest, they're starting to use, utilize these growth regulators uh, as part of the systemic seed treatments, and and I also use them as foliar applications later in the season, and uh, for pest control, they're actually far more effective at at killing insects than insecticides are because they don't kill adult. Like in the case of honeybees, they don't kill the adult honeybee, and so therefore the bees can continue to forage the crop. They bring it back to the colony, and they disrupt the the ability of the colony to to continue on. And if you and if you can disrupt at the colony level, whether it's termites or bumblebees or honeybees or or aphids. Uh, uh, you're going to be much more effective at getting rid of those populations, and that's what they utilize these growth regulators for. The last topic we're going to talk about is the debate over what to do regarding the Zika virus. 
the Zika virus has been a major concern, and with good reason. It's a concern for pregnant women, the impact on the fetus, and there are people that are running scared. They are dumping all sorts of chemicals onto their land because they don't want mosquitoes. Jeff, what are your views about the Zika virus? How do you think that the treatments that are being proposed, especially with more aerial spraying, are going to impact honeybees? Well, it's interesting. Thanks for asking the question because Zika virus, uh, obviously we we want to hatch. Uh, I'm, I'm using a term. Uh, we want our kids to, to be born healthy, right? And so obviously we want to make sure that we minimize the Zika virus or the potential for the Zika virus. One of the things that, that the press is really not talking about is, is that when down in South America where it was originally discovered that the that it was really fairly localized and, and it was in an agricultural area and they utilized a significant amount of pesticide products. And one of the theories is that the the pesticide products actually lowered the immune system in the, in the pregnant women in the community and therefore uh, they were susceptible for to to get the Zika virus. But as a commercial beekeeper, obviously the the more pressing thing is uh, we think we think the way to handle Zika virus is to uh, limit the mosquito population, and the way they're intending to do that is with the use of growth regulators spread on water or uh, foliar uh, application of insecticide, which kills mosquitoes by contact. Um, the contact applications are if they were applied properly can uh, generally be applied without killing honeybees but however the the problem is that mosquito abatement people like to sleep at like at night like everybody else and so therefore they make ineffective daytime applications and the reason I say they're ineffective is anybody that lives in a mosquito area knows that mosquitoes uh, get active late in the afternoon and evening and on into the night hours and a little bit in the morning and, and pretty much during the daylight hours, they, they're pretty inactive, relatively speaking. So if you want to put on an uh, application that kills by contact, you want to do it at night or late late in the evening when the mosquitoes are out and available. And generally speaking, pollinators uh, forage during the daytime hours. And so there's there is a window of time when you can fly insecticide without killing pollinators. However, that's not how it's being done. Uh, it's done at uh, applicator convenience. And the other thing, uh, being a little bit cynical here, uh, the less effective you are with your application by doing it in the middle of the daytime, the more times you can apply and the more times you can get paid. And and, and I think that's kind of where we're headed with this. So... I seriously doubt that the insecticide application is actually going to control Zika virus. And what's interesting to me is with the West Nile and some of the other mosquito-borne diseases, the areas that treated the hardest for mosquitoes actually had the highest incidence of of West Nile. And I suspect that uh, 
five years from now, if we were to have this conversation, you would probably find that areas that treated the hardest for Zika virus actually had the most incidence of it. Thanks, Jeff. Now, Tom, in your neck of the woods, I know that in Boulder County, there are a lot of aggressive measures as far as protecting the environment and protecting the bees. But is Zika a huge concern in your area? And if so, are there any proposed efforts as far as resolving the threat? Well, what I understand of the Zika virus is that it's confined to to more to warmer areas of the country and that we would be out of its range or on the very edge of its range. So it's not the concern here that it would be elsewhere. Here in Boulder County, I think we have a fairly thoughtful, progressive population, and we, we've dealt with mosquito spraying for a number of years, and the emphasis has been on controlling mosquitoes at the larval stage, larviciding, not spraying. Spraying in some instances where the larviciding didn't work, but I think the key here is forethought and not just go and get whatever happens to be in the spray shed and apply it. And smaller municipalities may be inclined to do that and less thoughtful municipalities may be inclined to do that. But there are ways to control the mosquitoes that don't necessarily involve the heavy chemicals as a first course. I'd like to bounce to that larval side idea for just a second, Tom, because one of the things, because larvicides can be a real problem for honeybee colonies as well. Uh, honeybees are no different than you and I are. You know, they, they require uh, water to, to survive. In fact, in round numbers, if you want to create a, a, a frame of adult bees, you have to have a frame of water, a frame of pollen, and a frame of nectar and, of course, obviously a queen to lay the eggs. But if any of those, any of those are contaminated, um, it can disrupt the ability of the hive to raise adult bees. And larvicides are, are the other end of the spectrum. They, they have the potential, if they're brought back into the colony, to actually kill the, the egg just after it's laid when it's in the larval stage. So uh, larvicides have to be used judiciously as well, even in mosquito abatement applications. I think that's a good point, Jeff, and I was thinking that when I was talking. We've used larviciding here, but that was before the insect growth regulators appeared on the scene. So I guess even larviciding now has some serious questions associated with it. You can't use broad-spectrum poisons, whatever their mode of action may be, and expect it to not hit some beneficial things as well as your target. Well, it'll be interesting to see what exactly they do and if it is according to region. I know with West Nile, aerial spraying seemed to be the overall resolve in all areas. It'll be interesting, as I said, to see how this plays out. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to join me and Tom today. It's, it's always great to talk to you and to hear your perspective, especially when it comes to the commercial migratory honeybee industry. Yeah. 
thanks for having me on, June. I appreciate it. Uh, hopefully your listeners uh, gain some insights from our conversation today. Well, you always give us a special insight from the commercial end of the business, Jeff, and it's always helpful. Forward to future conversations with you. Thank you. And, folks, please check out the companion article, which will be available on theorganicview.com. If you haven't subscribed, please also subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's really easy. All you have to do is just go to YouTube, punch in The Organic View, and you can check out our latest interviews as well as some of our older ones. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with The Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.